Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today I'm talking with Neil Marr, professor of history and master teacher in the Federated History Department at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and Rutgers University, Newark. Dr. Marr's research focuses on the intersection of environmental and political history, and his scholarship includes his 2008 book entitled Nature's New Deal. I came across that particular book in looking for a guest who might talk with me about the Civilian Conservation Corps and the lessons from that Depression-era program that might apply to current policy and political deliberations. So I'm very pleased to welcome Neil to the program today for an overview of the CCC's successes, its challenges, and its legacy in the American conservation and historical landscape. Hi, Kristen. How are you? Thanks for having me. Hi. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today on Resources Radio. So, Neil, I think you're the first environmental historian that we've had on the show, I think. Um, I really should check my records on that, but I believe that's the case. So I guess I wanted to start by asking you know, about you and how you came to find yourself at the intersection of these multiple disciplines as you were building your research career. Sure. Um, I, I was an undergraduate student and I was a history major. Um, and I was um, into the outdoors. So um, after college, I moved to Boston, where I, I joined an environmental organization, um, the Public Interest Research Groups, which were begun by Ralph Nader. And it was quite a while back. It was the 20th anniversary of Earth Day. And, and we ran what at the time was the largest um, door-to-door canvas in U.S. history. So it was really an exciting time. It was a recycling initiative. And Ralph Nader actually came to the, the canvas and wished us well. Um, but I missed academia. So I, I then realized there was this field called environmental history where I could combine that interest in, in the past with, you know, the environmental work and the environmental interest that I had as well. So it was a perfect fit for me. And I was glad that it was out there. Right. That it existed in the first yeah, place. Yeah. yeah. Great. Uh, well, so again, I'm really pleased to be joined today to talk about the Civilian Conservation Corps. Um, it is a topic, and I mean this quite sincerely, it's a topic that's just, I don't know, I've had an interest in speaking with someone about it, and I'm so I was really grateful to come across your work. And, and really, I will say my interest has only grown in this since the advent of the pandemic and all the accompanying discussions about the ways in which both the private sector and the federal government might be able to put people back to work in this time of such, you know, terrible employment conditions. So, um, yeah, so I think there's a lot here for us to dive into. And I guess I wanted to start with kind of um, some definitional work as is often beneficial. So what was the Civilian Conservation Corps? What were its primary aims? Sure. So it was a New Deal program that Franklin Roosevelt initiated during his first hundred days in office. And in one of his early fireside chats, he said, look, we're not only facing an economic crisis. He also said we were facing an environmental crisis as well. And he talked about deforestation and and some flooding. So he thought the CCC would be a way to solve both crises at the same time, put young men to work. And it was only men. Is that right? Yeah, it was only men. Um, Only men between the ages of 18 and 25, and their families had to be on relief rolls. Um, um, And it it functioned for nine years um, and did an incredible amount of work out there. But that issue of it being all male is one of the the, the blind spots that I think we'll be discussing later in our our 
conversation. Yes, I would love to get back to that too. But maybe we can talk just a little bit more about the demographics of the people who were involved too. So I'm curious, you know, how many people actually went to work through the program? And what do we what do we know about them? Sure. Um, there were over 3 million young men who oh. enrolled in the program. Yeah, it, it only functioned for nine years, but 3 million young men went through it. Again, they had to be between the ages of 18 and 25, and their families had to be on relief rolls. Um, so their families were you know, unemployed. There, there's a sort of misunderstanding that it was mostly urban young men that went into the program. It's not true. It was 50-50 urban and rural men. And they were sent to these camps, these 200-man camps that were stationed all over the country in, in forests and um, near agricultural lands and in parks. And they lived there and then traveled out into the, the woods to do their work. Very interesting. So did they represent all races, all levels of income? We've talked about it. It sounds like it was a pretty narrow age range. I'd be curious if you can say anything more about maybe why they limited it to 18 to 25. But within that, did they did they really cover kind of, did they come from all sorts of backgrounds? Yeah, um, they, they did. Um, first, let's talk about some of the, the, the problems, right? I mean, they, they didn't allow women to join. And also, um, African-Americans were put in segregated camps. Um, and Native Americans had a whole separate program that they were put in. So it wasn't exactly the most um, accessible or open um, program. Um, but it did, you know, embrace a, a whole generation of working class um, Americans and, and gave them a job when they didn't have one. And um, fed them and uh, helped their families as well because the pay that these young men got, um, the majority of it, uh, $25 of the $30 a month paycheck went home to their families. Hmm. Interesting. And so the 18 to 25 year olds, you mentioned that they, uh, sorry, what was the term that you used for they had to be on the? Um, public relief. Oh, public relief. Okay. Uh, but I assume, well, how big was the set of people who were on public relief? And yeah. Did they actually come from, you know, had they started off at various levels of income and then only to find themselves on relief during the Depression? It's hard to know. I mean, when the Depression hit, um, we reached a 25% unemployment rate. So one in four Americans were unemployed. Um, so most, you know, many, many young men were unemployed. If anything, jobs were going to the, the breadwinners in families, so the, the fathers, right? So this was a way to um, get the, the young men out of the house, get them off the street corners, um, and give them jobs that would help their families um, and, and you know, sort of take some of the pressure, um, financial pressure, off those families. Um, so it was working class people, working class young men. Interesting. And what did the jobs actually look like? What did what did, what was the range of activities that these folks were undertaking? Um, it, it it sort of changed throughout the 30s. They began primarily as a tree planting program. So the camps would plant trees in forests. But then in 1934, the the Dust Bowl hit right in the Great Plains. The the the, the massive dust storms hit, and the Corps expanded its work into soil conservation. Um, conserving 40 million acres of land. And that's after planting 2 billion trees, which was half the trees planted in U.S. history up to that time. But then in the late 30s, it expanded again into park development work. And the Corps developed 800 new state parks from the ground up and basically improved every national park um, in the country. They All told, they, they transformed an area that's larger than California. Mm. Yeah, so... A massive a amount of work. Significant, right. A pretty significant legacy. And I definitely want to talk to you a little bit later on, too, about kind of the legacy. But even just having that um, that picture of the scale of this uh, is really impressive. And and something I was really not aware of, to be honest. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that. But it's, it, this is 
I mean, yeah. Franklin and Franklin Roosevelt was very um, um, aware that a lot of people didn't know what, what the Corps was doing. So in the 30s, they promoted it very, very extensively all over the country. Advertisements, newsreels, um, you know, magazine articles. Um, they were very, very aware of the promotional efforts that were needed to, you know, get everyone on board. Right. And not just promoting it in the sense of it exists as an opportunity and we want people to join, but really promoting it for its successes. Is that Absolutely. right? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So another thing that I've been curious about is about um, the training programs that might have been or that were associated with the Civilian Conservation Corps. It, were they or were there training programs? And, and if so, what did they look like? Yeah, the, the training was essential to the program. Franklin Roosevelt really thought of this as the conservation of two different resources, the natural resources that were out in the woods and on the farms and in the parks, but also the human resources of these young men. And they promoted this all the time. And, and the training programs were part of that. So um, the Corps argued and showed that it trained these young men while they were on the job, they called it. So the young men would leave their camps and go out into the forests and they'd work with foresters or they'd work on farms with agronomists. And they would learn about those sciences through their work. But then when they came back to the camp um, after dinner, they could take classes and Many of those classes were vocational, like automotive classes or even learning how to type, a lot of literacy classes, but they were also classes in the conservation sciences, as they called them. So many of these young men later on went into, you know, conservation-related jobs, actually, so they were trained well. And who was providing the training? Were they government employees? Were there, you know, were they connected with kind of local farmers? Who was actually doing the educating? So the camps were run by the military. Um, so in each camp, the military made sure the young men were eating correctly and, you know, uh, clothed in the winter and warm in the winter and those sorts of things. And they brought people in. There was an educational advisor for each camp and they would either um, have the um, administrators, the forester or the agronomist, the agricultural administrator doing some of the work with the men, teach a class, or they would team up with local um schools and have teachers from the schools come in and teach the young men. There was a real fluid movement of people and ideas between the camps and local communities that was quite, quite interesting, actually. Hmm. I'm finding this fascinating. Um, <laughs> so I feel like you're doing a wonderful job of sort of articulating how robust the program was and how how much thought they put into sort of the different aspects of it. In fact, I'm sitting here thinking, well, what a marvelous program. And yet I am sure that looking back, at least, there was maybe significant concerns about how it was designed or um, who was included. So let's talk about some of the downsides, at least the as, you know, looking from a, a 21st century position backwards. Um, what are some of the things that people criticize about the Civilian Conservation Corps? Well, when, when Roosevelt um, proposed it, first of all, um, the unions were quite alarmed because they felt that this was going to be taking a lot of work away from workers. So Franklin Roosevelt then um, sort of adjusted and, and tweaked the program in ways that would alleviate those concerns. So first of all, he hired two unionists to run the program, <laughs> um, which helped. And then he, he made most of the labor the young men would do manual labor. So it was, it was supposed to not interfere with the more skilled labor of many of those union workers. Um, an African-American congressman also opposed the Corps because it was segregated. So Franklin Roosevelt adjusted it and it, it, it accounted for population percentages for each state. Uh, and then allowed African-Americans to enroll according to those those populations. Um, and um, and then during the, the 30s, there were also people who pushed back against the Corps because uh, of its work. So 
in some instances, the Corps undertook work that was ecologically unsound. And, and it's interesting. We have to remember that the science of ecology back then was in its infancy, right? Very few people were studying it. Um, but the Corps did do several types of programs that, that made people quite upset. <laughs> hmm. Can you give some examples? Sure. Um, so for instance, the reforestation program, they tended to plant single species of trees in straight rows, right. um, which decreased um, biodiversity, but also uh, made them more um, uh, more prone to pest infestations and diseases. Along the eastern seaboard, they tried to control mosquitoes by draining swamps, which again hurt, for instance, migratory uh, bird um, habitat. Um, and then to control soil, they used a lot of invasive species to hold that soil, including kudzu, a Japanese invasive species that is now rampant all over the south. It sure so, is. So yeah, so on the ecological front, there were some problems, but you know, we have to put ourselves in, in the moment, right? In the 1930s, you know, a lot of those issues were, we weren't aware of them at the time as fully as we are now. Right. The, it's funny that you've mentioned those three examples because I feel like those are three things that I can point to from, again, from my 21st century perspective and say, oh, really? You know, even I, fairly uh, removed from tree planting and, and uh, kudzu, can say, oh, kudzu, yeah, that's really bad. But you're right. I mean, I, you're absolutely right. I imagine yeah. at the time it seemed like a. Seems right. like a good idea. So right. is that how we got kudzu? I just want to ask, is that really where it's where it entered this country in the first place? I don't know if that's where it entered it, but I do know that that is the reason we have such a problem with it across the South. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the kudzu was also a good fodder crop for cattle. So they thought it was the perfect, you know, solution to hold the soil and also feed, you know, your cattle. Um, but there were no predators, so it obviously spread everywhere. Um, and then, of course, I also want to talk about the, the, the social and cultural missteps also, but we yeah. can do that maybe later. I'm not sure where you want to go. Well, let's talk about it now. That sounds great. Okay. Yeah, why don't we, why don't we share a little bit about that? Sure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, along with those ecological, you know, missteps, there, there was a host of cultural or social problems as well. We've already mentioned the fact that it was all male. Um, it was, um, you know, very, very young men. So older men were not allowed to enroll, although they that local communities were allowed to um, send five what they called local experienced men to, to help the, the young enrollees out. Um, again, African-Americans were sent to segregated camps. Native Americans were in a, a separate program. Um, so these social issues, you know, uh, accompanied um, many of the ecological problems uh, to create a program that was incredibly successful through its work, but also if you look a little bit deeper, um, you know, had some drawbacks that I think um, are important to acknowledge and understand and, and, and avoid in the future, any future programs. Right. I guess one more question about kind of the, this is also leading towards the legacy question, but you mentioned a number of things that uh, current ecological practice would, would frown upon. Have people actually had to undo the work of the Civilian Conservation Corps to sort of, you know, rip out some of these, well, I think they probably have, but to rip out some of these invasive species and re-diversify forest stocks and things like that? Absolutely. And I think that one of the work projects that was also criticized, but I didn't really mention before, was that the Corps was also responsible for building roads and trails through what had been wild areas, so on, on roadless areas, right? So there were these incredibly large swaths of, of forests that were inaccessible and to, to increase accessibility and, and to allow people like Franklin Roosevelt, who, you know, had polio and couldn't hike, um, to make it more accessible, they 
built roads, and um, many of those roads have now been taken out. Um, the wilderness movement actually began in opposition to many of the roads that the CCC was building through national parks, especially down in the Great Smoky Mountains. So they've, they've taken out some of the roads, they've ripped up the kudzu, they've... Um, right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, I, a question that I meant to ask earlier, but I'll, I'll go ahead and ask it now, was what was the perception of these jobs? And, um, you know, were they generally seen as desirable or even prestigious? And I don't know if you can answer that sort of across the entire population of three million people. Everyone's an individual, of course, but I'm, I'm curious what the sort of historical record shows about that perception. Sure. Well, the, the, the public perception of the Corps really shifted. So in the beginning, all these local communities, there were 1,500 of these camps spread out throughout the nation, all near local communities, right? And at first, the local communities were incredibly upset that these, what they thought were these young urban boys, hoodlums, were coming in to their areas and coming into their towns and trying to dance with their daughters and those sorts of things. But but they soon realized that um, the federal dollars that were flowing through these camps into these local communities was was incredibly helpful and substantial. About $5,000 a month um, per camp flowed to local businesses. So as soon as that kicked in, they sort of, you know, kept an eye out on their daughters, but allowed the young men to come to town and supported the Corps. So that was one area where the Corps gained on the economic front. But even public perception of it was, you know, very, very positive. I think it was, you know, without doubt, the, the most popular New Deal program. There's a story I came across in my work where a young boy went home for a visit and when they went home they wore their ccc uniform which was this olive green uniform with a tie and while he was home the uniform was stolen (laughs) because someone another guy yeah another guy wanted (laughs) to wear it around town and um you know pretend he was a ccc enrollee so i think that that says a lot those those local actions of borrowing a friend's uniform to make yourself look a little better, you know, says a lot about it. And was that something that the Roosevelt administration sort of actively made happen? That sort of, um, do you see them as having a role in sort of making these jobs seem prestigious? Or was it rather organic that they they developed that reputation? Um, I think it was both. And I think that maybe prestigious might not be the best word because it wasn't considered really like a, you know, a high level job. But yeah, it was more. Yeah, I could think it was. It was sort of more of a a job that people felt very positive about because these young men were they were working for the country. They were doing hard manual labor. Um, they were transforming themselves physically, which Franklin Roosevelt and the, his administration were very um, uh, public about. Um, and people just felt really good putting these young boys to work in American nature, right? Making American men out of them. That was really part of this story was that the young men who came in were often thought of as, you know, Polish Americans, Irish Americans, German Americans, and the Corps promoted it as a civic melting pot where through work in nature, these young hybrid Americans became full-fledged Americans, right? And and that that was popular at the time. I think it was, you know, it would be very unpopular today, I think, not as popular today. And there's also a problem with that because if you don't buy into that 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 nice story, that makes it pretty tough to to participate in the program, you know. And also African Americans couldn't transform like that, right? You know, and or nor could Native Americans. So it left some people out of that that sort of that narrative as well. Mm-hmm. You know? 
Wow, I'm learning a lot. <laughs> so, um, okay, well, I and I, I'm trying to sort of digest all this in my head, and I feel like I want to jump ahead and sort of ask you about the many, many ways that it occurs to me that we could learn from this experience in in the current political context. But, but let me just kind of talk about the history for just two more questions here. So how would you characterize the legacy, maybe at a 30,000 foot level, how would you characterize the legacy of the Civilian Conservation Corps? And did it really kind of achieve, in, again, in your view, did it achieve the aims that we talked about kind of at the outset of this talk? Yeah. Um, the legacy, I think, would be twofold. Uh, first of all, I think it, it left a legacy with the young men who went through the program. I mean, I've interviewed maybe a dozen of them. Um just to get their their take on their experiences. And all of them think back on it. Um, it. Sort of the analogy I keep thinking of is sort of like a college experience where these young men were working class men. They were not going to college. But this was the first time they were able to leave their families, be independent, be in a, a group of, of peers. Um, many of them traveled far away because the Corps assigned these young men to camps that were distant from their homes because they didn't want them to be able to walk home when they got homesick. So many of them saw the country for the first time, you know, young, young boys from, you know, New York City who were traveling out west to the Rocky Mountains to do work. So they think of it really, really um, with nostalgia. And it changed their lives. Many of them went into the military from the CCC and uh, had a positive experience in that. Many of them went into conservation jobs. They see it. Many of them met their wives, actually. They went into town. They went to those dances and they actually met <laughs> Shoot, their wives. I guess they were wise to keep an eye on those daughters, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But the other legacy, I think, is the physical landscape that's been left behind. So any state park you go into today, there's, you know, CCC trails, CCC visitor centers, CCC campgrounds, the national parks, the same thing. The whole Tennessee Valley is peppered with CCC work. Many of the agricultural fields we see today or rely on for our farms have been affected by, you know, sort of that rethinking of soil conservation back in the 30s. So, um the American landscape has been transformed by it, and we don't realize that, and, you know, that's okay, but it does give us a chance to get outside and, you know, enjoy our parks in ways that I think leads to a better appreciation of the natural environment. It's very, very positive. I just want to add also that part of that human conservation that I talked about earlier, where these young men were being conserved, the, the CCC also promoted the recreational infrastructure that it created as a way of helping conserve human resources as well, because it gave urban people a chance to get out of the cities and go to these state parks nearby and get outdoors and hike and camp. And that was another example of that, 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 that human conservation that they had talked about in the thirties. Mm-hmm. All right. So with this tremendously helpful background, I'm now going to ask you to take on the Herculean task of pulling all of these threads together and forward into the future. And there's, again, so many different ways where I think we could approach the conversation about what the history of the Civilian Conservation Corps might mean for today. But maybe just to give one bit of context, um, President Biden has signaled interest in starting a, what I've read would be titled something like the Civilian Climate Corps as part of his wide-ranging commitment to tackling climate change. And I think there have even been signals that he wants to model this to some extent on the Civilian Conservation Corps and its successes and its, uh, and you know, overcoming some of the challenges. So what lessons should the Biden administration be keeping in mind, given this tremendous history here, as they're seeking to design a new program for, for today? 
first I think they should hire a, an historian to help them do it. And they should, they should call me up and I would be <laughs> happy to take a leave from my university for a year to help him. But more seriously, um, I think he has to, and his administration has to realize that this was a program that you can both learn from and build on its, its successes, but also you have to understand and, and learn from its missteps. And I think that there are maybe three or four ways to think about that. So, you know, the most obvious, you know, improvement would be to make it accessible to everyone, regardless of gender, age, race. And this is incredibly important because, you know, people right now, um, women and minorities are experiencing higher levels of unemployment and higher levels of economic insecurity than the population at large. So that that inclusiveness is incredibly important right now. Um, secondly, I think it, the program would need to be more geographically equitable. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the camps were spread out all over the country in the 30s, but they were spread out in rural areas, you know, forests, um, farmland, you know, uh, parks. So city people really did not benefit from the work being done. So they had a host of problems on their own, you know, uh, waste, uh, pollution, toxic waste, um, different sorts of uh, uh, limited access to outdoor parks, things like that. And the core really could have helped that. So I think that a Biden program would, would need to place those camps not only in cities, but also in suburbs, not just rural areas. Third, I think that the program would need to be more environmentally just. And what I mean by that is that Biden's CCC could still conserve natural resources like the original CCC did, but also needs to undertake environmental justice work. And that would entail, you know, identifying local problems, listening and involving local people, and then trying to address um, those local problems. So, for instance, I, I teach in the city of Newark, New Jersey, and, um, you know, we, we could benefit enormously from a core camp in the city of Newark to help us out, you know, remediate toxic waste or help us build, you know, community gardens. And then finally, I think a new core needs to focus on the most pressing problem today, and that's climate change. And that seems to be what, you know, President Biden is, is, is pushing here. Um, a new core could help communities adapt to climate change by, you know, building climate resilient infrastructure like restoring wetlands or building green stormwater systems. And then it could also help mitigate climate change, right? By developing energy systems, solar and wind mm -hmm. energy Weatherizing systems. homes. Right, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. um, or even just even the planting of the trees that it did in the 30s, right? To help sequester carbon. Um, and all of this, all of this work could help train enrollees today in jobs in the green energy sector, just like the old CCC did for jobs in the conservation fields. Um, so for me, it, it really, um, there's a great amount of potential and I'm just really excited that he's moving ahead with this. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be very interesting to see how this unfolds. And clearly the administration has signaled as well its interest in having all of these discussions centered in environmental justice. And so, yes. but, but it does strike me that a number of the things that you mentioned, um, well, tell me if you think this is a fair characterization, that um, the set of activities that something like a civilian climate corps or, you know, a civilian environmental corps would undertake is in fact more diverse, more disparate, would require different types of skills. You know, it's a different skill set to sort of install solar panels than it is to plant trees. So even putting the program together would be perhaps a to really tackle the sets of problems that we're talking about today would take a different kind of program design and a different type of of um, training commitment than perhaps even the CCC did back in the day. Do you think that's a fair characterization? 
I, I do. I do. I think that it's very different, but I think it doesn't necessarily suggest that it's insurmountable. And I, and I know that that's not what you were suggesting, but we have to remember in, in the 1930s, these young men, many of them had never even held an axe before, right? And they, they definitely hadn't, you know, been hiking. And so the CCC hired these local men who were often, you know, loggers, and they had people from the Department of Agriculture or the Department of the Interior training these young men. And within a couple of weeks, these, these young boys were really doing amazing amounts of work. So I don't, I think that we could do the same thing. I think that you could hire, um, you know, people with experience in installing solar energy systems or, um, you know, people who have, have knowledge about restoring wetlands and, and, and train these young people pretty quickly. I mean, I've talked to some of my students about this type of possibility and they're they're very excited about it. They're really excited to learn a new skill while also feeling somehow connected to the country and to a, a civic culture that I think is really missing um, in our in our world right now. Well, and that's actually, that's a, such a great lead in. I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's actually the kind of the last, the last question that I want to ask you. I'm sorry that we're running out of time here, but you know, I, a lot of what you were mentioning in describing the CCC about the way that it bonded society together in some interesting ways, or at least, you know, certain subsets of that. I don't want to, recognizing all of its problems, but, you know, giving a sense of sort of American purpose and, you know, contribution to the country. I I wonder if you feel like that's possible today in the same way. I feel it's possible and I feel it's absolutely necessary. And I I feel um, strongly about that because I hear it from my students, but I think it would have to be a little bit different. So in the 30s, there was this belief that that sort of Americanization process was something very, very positive. And you might, I teach in, in Newark, New Jersey. One of my campus is at one point the most diverse campus in the country. My students don't want to lose their identities as, as um, you know, the, the, and their cultures, but they also long to feel more connected to an American culture, right? So I think that rather than it being an Americanization process, a program like this could allow young people or people of any age maintain their identities and their their cultural connections that are so important to them, but still join together across those divides and across divisions that separate them culturally to feel like they're working for a common good. And I think that that's just so important. I mean, we, we have not had that in so long. Um, so um, I think there's a way to walk the, the, a fine line between letting people who enroll in a program like this maintain their sense of self while also having them be able to join together more in this sort of common civic purpose, which, you know, could allow them to really understand each other and also maybe their relationship to uh, the nation a little bit more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Boy, I'm feeling very inspired right now myself. And I hope that this certainly, I hope that sense for inspiration comes across in whatever design a new administration would put forward because I, I certainly hear you on the community building benefits of a program like this. And um, yeah, I feel like getting outside and planting a few trees myself. So. <laughs> I think it's a Friday afternoon, so maybe I'll use my weekend, but um, Neil, I just, I really appreciate your time on this. It's been a really interesting um, background. And as I mentioned, I've, I've learned a ton. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks for having me. It's been a, a really great conversation. Yeah, of course. Great. 
So let's close with our regular closing feature, uh, Top of the Stack. And I'm sure our listeners know at this point what Top of the Stack is, but I would love to ask you to recommend some good content and um, happy to take recommendations about the CCC or really any other compelling subject matter that you'd like to recommend to our listeners. So Neil, what's on the top of your stack? The top of my stack right now are 30 midterms that I need to grade. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, of my students, but I'll get through that. And um, I've been just beginning a book um, that uh, is by a colleague of mine. Um, Her name is Jenny Price, and the the title of the book is Stop Saving the Planet, an Environmentalist Manifesto. And it's a a short little book, about 100 pages, published by Norton. Um, It's incredibly reasonably priced uh, on purpose. It's like 10 bucks. And basically, you know, what I love, Jenny's an amazing writer. She wrote um, an amazing uh, book about plastic pink flamingos. She's just this incredibly talented writer. But um, this book is really trying to make the argument that environmentalists need to stop talking about an environment that is out there and separate from us, right? Like wilderness. And we need to start really thinking about the environment that's all around us and all connected to us and the environment that connects us with other people who might not be um, uh, the same as us. Um, So it's really a call to think more locally. It's a call to think more in in an environmental just way, more equitably. Um, And I think a, a, a call to sort of think about your daily actions in ways that might be more sustainable and, um, you know, more realistic in trying to help alleviate some of the environmental problems that we're, we're dealing with. She's just a great writer. It's very short and funny and, you know, you could read it in an afternoon and I, I highly recommend it. That's fantastic. Great. Well, we will, uh, we will link to that from the, from the recording page so that folks can check it out and yeah, really appreciate the recommendation and thank you again. It's been a great chat. Kristen, thanks so much for letting me uh, chat with you also. It's been wonderful. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.